This is the Green Data Center Podcast. Data centers are where the cloud and the internet lives, and data centers are the fastest growing sector in the design and construction industry. From big tech companies to startups, 5G to blockchain, selfies to self-driving, the internet is expected to become an even bigger part of our lives. And it's all supported by a growing legion of mammoth facilities known as data centers. Our digital footprint grows phenomenally every year, and that data passes through, is stored and processed by the contents of these large energy-intensive buildings throughout the world. We will dive into the data center industry lingo, data center types, sizes and standards, the history, the latest news, technology, efficiencies, and what it takes to make a data center green. Welcome to the Green Data Center Podcast. This is going to be a very informal discussion about the data center industry. We're going to focus more on the efficiency and reliability of the facilities themselves, and we'll tangentially roam into other areas that data centers are connected to. But before we launch into things, we need to get a few disclaimers in place. So let's get that done first by using this podcast and anything related, including websites, journals, anything like that. The user agrees as follows. The information, services, opinions, products here are given to the user with the understanding that neither the author, the seller, the publisher is engaged in rendering any legal business or financial advice to the consumer or to the general public. The views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official position of any of the companies or individuals involved. Any content provided here or on the website or tangentially are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign anyone. Any religious groups, organizations, clubs, companies, individuals, or anyone or anything. Although we make a lot of effort to make sure that the information is accurate, we cannot guarantee that all of the information on this podcast or any of the websites involved are always correct. And it may not be complete and especially might not be up to date because the industry does change. So one year from now, two years from now, even six months from now, the industry can change and pivot and incorporate new products. So we can't be held accountable for any of that. All products and their specifications and data or anything like that that's mentioned or brought up or on the websites or anything like that are subject to change without notice to approve the reliability, the function, the design, or any of the other features. Not all the products and or features may be available in all countries or regions, so some things that might be mentioned might not be available worldwide. So for legal reasons, features may be deleted or unmentioned from any of the products or any of those features may be taken away in the future. And we can also refuse to offer any products or anything like that. Plus, we are also agnostic according to the companies, the people, the products, and everything involved. All right, is that enough for disclaimers for now? I think so. This first episode of the Green Data Center podcast is basically going to walk through a lot of the terms that we take for granted 
as well as the different things about data centers that those that are involved in the industry already understand, have a good handle on. So we're gonna walk through that, the history, the purpose, the missions, data center types and sizes, what goes in the rooms, what goes out of the rooms, all those different components, so that you have a good understanding of everything that's involved when talking about data centers in the next episodes. So if you already know data centers and some of those terms and terminology, you can go ahead and skip to the next episode as this might be lengthy and boring for you. So we'll see you on the next one if we don't see you here. All right, well, where do we start? So we can review some of the history and we'll probably go back on that a little bit at some points of this podcast if this truly becomes like a full series. But let's start with some of the history of how did we get here, right? So if you think about, you know, way back in history, the mechanization around 1760s, 1765, I think is the date pegged by a lot of people about here's mechanization, here's how we have things that we can start to produce. And then mass production comes around about a century later in the 1870s. We start just mass producing all sorts of things. And then a lot of the auto factories really started to perfect that and Kaizen processes and so on. Around 1969, there was automated production really started to kick in. And that means that things could be produced without human hands and it became a lot of hands-off, same production of the same thing over and over and over again. And then we have the digital transformation and that's today's era, basically. And that's where we have a lot of that digital infrastructure already built so that automation can be done and changed and upgraded. So a lot of that was part of that past and there's all sorts of history that can be reviewed and uh, reflected upon all throughout there. So feel free to take a look at some of those history things just for a quick lesson. Well, how does that deal with data centers? Well, that deals with data centers because eventually we realized that we were trying to create these chips and such, and all of that history plays into creating better programming. So you can start to look at what happened through World War II and how computers came about, those kinds of things as part of that history as well. So some of the things I did want to touch on though, just in that history was in that 1960s, the ENIAC came about and that stands for the Electronic Numerator, Integrator, Analyzer, and Computer. So that's the acronym there. But that thing was 30 tons, it was 1800 square feet, and there were six full-time people, techs, to basically take care of that thing. Um, and it was mostly just replacing tubes and fixing things all the time, as well as just trying to get it to run and uh, program as well. So the 1970s comes around and we have the first commercial microprocessor. And that means we have the first commercial data center recovery space at about 30,000 square feet. And it was air-cooled computers. And that was all set up in offices. So it wasn't exactly the most desirable thing. And not only that, they realized how much heat was being uh, dissipated by all of this equipment. So there started to be that boom towards, okay, let's see what we can do for water cooling, those kinds of aspects in order to make it more efficient or just even make it run. And then the 1980s came about and that's where we had the microcomputer boom, right? So it wasn't necessarily about the supercomputers as much as it was just getting desktops out to everyone and, and everybody everywhere. 
Um, we had some supercomputer facilities. Um, there was one at Cornell that established considerations for operating requirements, and that's basically where we started to have like a lot of those operating parameters started to get quantified. So we knew what those parameters were, what it took, what affected different aspects of the computer itself. Those supercomputers became very finicky, um, but sometimes there were some robust components. So it was just trying to get how that can operate and operate better so that it didn't fail. Not necessarily about efficiency at all, really. So in 1990s, we have servers appear, and that's what you think of as like the servers in the racks that you think of in, in movies and such. And that's exactly what happens at data centers. And they're located in the these old computer rooms. Um, and basically, these server rooms began to migrate to specialized locations. So it was certain rooms that were set up for this. But not only that, there were certain facilities, and they just became the data center, right? There's all this data. It's going through one special spot. So hence, the term data center started to be recognized throughout the world. And the dot-com boom of the late 90s, that allowed companies to really build large facilities until the datacom bubble burst. Then it became something where a lot of people had to suddenly get rid of these data centers or realize that, hey, this isn't necessarily what we want to have on our books. So other facilities started to uh, disappear while others started to grow, realizing that the data that we're going to have in the future, that's just going to keep growing. So some companies that that wasn't their specialty, pulled away from having data centers, while others that realized this is kind of one of those future trends they want to be part of, they started to build more facilities. And then in the 2000s, uh, the number of data centers grew. Um, government data centers went from around 400 to you know, around 1,200 today. Um, and that's just some of the main ones. I'm not talking about the closets, uh, you know, some of those small ones that maybe you know, had started back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that are still around today and just got some upgrades. There's a lot of those around for the government, but think of that and then multiply it by about 10 for the amount of commercial that's also out there worldwide. So a lot of that was estimated to be around 4 to 5% of the total energy consumption of the U.S. Um, around the world, it's a little bit harder to measure because we don't have a, a lot of those numbers from, say, China or India or Russia. But if you take that and extrapolate that to worldwide of that 4 to 5% of the, that total energy consumption, you can see that data centers are huge um, as compared to a lot of other facilities and energy use. And the growth has been around 10% per year. So in other words, that energy use is only going up. So in a lot of those ways, that really started that growth into the 2000s up to the 2020s where we are today. And even though we are growing and have all that growth, if the servers themselves and the facilities are getting much more efficient, but what that means is they're using more power with less space, but they are using it in a better way. And what we're getting to is increased computing performance as well. And it's been a logarithmic scale where we have that power, the amount of KW we can get, and the amount of flops that we can get per watt or megaflops per watt. That's starting to level off though. There's only so much you can really push things to do. I know that sometimes people are trying to get, you know, like let's get a petaflop within one rack. How can we do that? Right now we have a little limit of the speed of light. So we're really trying to figure that out, but 
that logarithmic scale is diminishing returns as far as that goes. The amount of flops per watt, the amount of power that's going into it, we can only reach a certain performance and then we start to plateau. Now, I mentioned that, but that means that also we're looking at the amount of KW that you might have in a particular rack. That has been going up as far as those averages. And it hasn't been going up as quickly as a lot of people might have predicted, but it is still going up pretty steadily. So be prepared for those racks to, yes, hit that 20kW average across the data center to 30, and even up to 40, 50, and beyond, depending on how the facility can be designed and what the servers are actually doing and how they're performing. So what is a data center? Well, that's what we're really kind of talking is how do we get that through that history and how things are performing? And basically it's just a place that is housing computer systems, network storage processing and other things. And those servers are dedicated within specialized rooms. And those rooms I like to say are for the silicon based life forms, not the carbon based life forms. In other words, they're made for the computers, not the people. So if you think about those server rooms as being a chilly, uh, cold server room in order to keep everything nice, calm, and cool inside of it, that's how it used to be. Today's modern data centers are actually much warmer because the equipment um, has become much more robust and can tolerate those heat, that heat being much higher. So in that way, we're building these facilities, again, for the computers themselves, not for the people that are going to be working or uh, you know inhabiting them because really they shouldn't be in there um, overall we want to have lights off data centers in most facilities so that's typical for us now we developed these facilities I talked a little bit about the history but how do we get through that and you basically have to look at okay what do we really need this facility to work for what do we need to provide and it again comes down to those servers that we're trying to match and how do we make sure that the power, the space, the cooling that goes with them works for the servers that are going within them. So that's really what it comes down to. But then we have all those requirements for the egress, for the people that need to work in there, get around, do all the things that they need to do to take care of all of those servers as well. So it's not just all about those servers. It does have to do with operating and maintenance of everything that's involved. And with that, you might have that main data center floor, and that might be walkable, and they might have those server racks like stacked up all throughout. But you still need to provide the power feeds to that, and you can have the power with all the distribution that's going on. You can have them with all the panels that are out there on that data center floor. And the same with the cooling. You might have the computer room air handlers out there on that data center floor to provide all the cooling more localized. But a lot of the modern facilities, you'll see that that power and that cooling is pulled back. It is very, very close, but it might not be within that data center room, that data center, um, what used to be called the white space. People have all sorts of different terms for it these days. But that data center room itself, where all the servers are at, might just contain the servers and servers only. So a lot of those other things that go along with it include the network and how do we get all the fiber and make sure that we have everything for the power and the cooling that can serve it, but also the physical security for the fire protection and everything else that has to happen for our, our regular facility. 
the local jurisdictions, in other words, where it's being built and the counties and the states where it's being, these are being built in the United States and the countries that they're being built in, they all have their regulations that it has to conform to. Those standards and, and such, those are what they're looking for for compliance. They wanna make sure that the building is going to be safe, that it can operate safely, that the electrical system isn't going to cause fires or the mechanical system isn't gonna cause air issues. All of that still needs to be complied with for a data center. So it is much, a lot of the same that you might be doing for a regular building design, but what we are doing is focusing on, again, providing power and cooling for those servers primarily, as well as making sure that we meet all of the other restrictions or basically the needs for that local jurisdiction to make sure that we're, we can get the permits and get it built and uh, have it operate safely. So that's some of the basics that we really need to cover here. Whenever we're talking about data centers in the industry, I just wanna make sure that that's some of the things that are known and that's why we're kind of reviewing a lot of that. So let's talk about that data center planning a little bit and talk about the building industry in general. So let's make sure that that's covered as well. And there's many phases to any type of building. Um, whenever you're planning and implementing a data center, it's a little bit different, but there's some of those things that are just the same. Like you need to obtain the requirements. You have to have a, a plan. Um, you have to have the land. You have to figure out it's going to be right, the zone correctly. And then you launch into design and then you procure everything that you need to, whether it's uh, particular equipment or specialized products. And then you go ahead and build the thing. You construct it and then you have to commission it. And that's a part that I really like to touch on is making sure that it can operate the way it's supposed to and not just necessarily at the maximum, which is what a lot of designers design for, is at the maximum, this is what power and cooling are going to need in that facility. And they will test to that. But also for data centers, what you really need to do is commission and make sure that you're looking at what that low end is also. So if you have a 10 foot, 10,000 square foot or you know, a thousand square meter room, what are you doing with that when it only has three racks in it? How can it operate under those low load conditions? Do you need to put a false load in there? Do you turn units off? How do you operate that low of a load to make sure that everything can operate, you know, at low load as well as the extreme loads? And then once it's up and running, you're basically monitoring and managing. And that to me is also another critical piece where of course people will say, well, you can't manage what you can't see so you've got a monitor to manage it and i would agree with that and there's all sorts of tools that you can use when doing that because a data center is going to have a lot of ads moves and changes throughout its life cycle so to operate and maintain that thing is got to be a plan that you're looking at and i mentioned that you know the data center room itself with all those servers that might be swapped out things happen hard drives fail and you might be swapping out all the servers, say within two, three, five years, but the facility itself is going to be there for much longer, right? So you have to plan on what that's going to be. And because of that, everything that goes on with the facility that's not in that data hall, that's not in that room, you have to pay attention to and figure out how to maintain and operate it so that you get consistent performance throughout the life of that building itself. Overall, I look at it as there's two needs oftentimes with data centers and there's the short-term needs based on like the current goals, where are you at today and the long-term growth needs. What do you need for the future? What do you think you might need for the future? 
and those play uh, important roles that can be oppositional to one another because those short-term needs might be just saying, you know what, we just need the requirements for today's IT equipment or even yesterday's equipment. Whenever it was purchased, we're just going to move it in and that's what we're going to use. Um, and there's you know plans to de develop for the latest internal server refresh, but that's about it. And they'll do one refresh and the servers may refresh five years or every two years. And that's what they want to build the facility around, right? And that can work just fine as that facility might last 20, 30, 40 years or even longer. But what you might look at is that long-term growth and say, okay, those are your current goals is saying, okay, we're going to refresh maybe this year with that current equipment, but what about the future equipment? What are the future goals there? So what are the requirements that you have for your IT equipment for tomorrow's IT equipment? And let's develop some plans from the latest industry servers, the refresh, where do we think it's headed? And that data center refresh is what we're looking at in say 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So what does that mean? Are we playing that facility just for, you know, those servers that say are only going to be up to say 12 KW each for a rack? Or are we going to try to plan out that long-term growth? And even though right now the facility doesn't even use say 10 KW a rack, they might plan that out for the future where it could grow up to say 20, 30, 40, 50 KW per rack. That is that long-term growth. But in order to plan that out, you really need to plan your facility for it. And if you're going to be planning for that type of facility in order to power in the cooling that can support that long-term growth that you're expecting, especially at those numbers, it's an investment now. And that where, that's where it can be opposing to what the short-term needs are, where a lot of the commercial aspects and even government or, and others might look at it and say, you know what, we don't need such long-term growth plans, we will go ahead and use another facility or add on to this facility, or even look to see what we can do to refurbish certain aspects or rooms of certain facilities that they already have in order to meet that long-term growth. They might be just planning somewhere in between. Instead of, say, two to five years, you know, they might say, well, 10 to 20 years is where we'll look at that on acquiring another data center or planning out some other long-term growth. So you really kind of have to put those requirements down on paper to make sure that you're meeting what you need whenever you're designing that data center or even looking at what your data center can do right now. And I mentioned about how much the equipment is changing and how that's accelerating, but there has been a bit of a plateau about the watts per use per equipment or watts per rack or even watts per square foot if you're using metrics like that. But the servers themselves are starting to plateau on what they are having as far as that future predictability. There are those in the industry that have been trying to track that and predict that and saying, okay, we're going to have a certain amount where we're looking at 40,000 you know, 40, watts per rack based on what the industry is looking at needing. But instead of, say, a 10% growth or 20% growth, it's leveling out to a 4 or 5% growth in the amount of power per rack, the amount of power per square foot, or the amount of power uh, per square meter, whatever metric you'd like to use, that, that 4 to 5% still tracks with that. And that tracks across basically all types of servers. And that's the extreme density, say the, some of those communication servers, as well as compute servers. 
like blades and, and so on. Um, but there's, you know, the compute servers that are lower density, there's storage servers, workstations, and even on down to this taped storage that really doesn't use that much power. But that's still increasing as far as density goes by that four to 5% a year. So that keeps increasing and that can lead to projecting out on that long-term growth chart that says, hey, how much do we really want to plan for for the future? Is it really going to increase 10 to 20%? Maybe our servers are just old and we need to do some refreshes and maybe that's that 20% increase in density or the amount of power that we might need. And after that, we can level out and say, let's plan on a four to five to 6% growth every year. All right, we've talked a lot about all those different things, but if we're gonna hit the basics also, we have to talk about data center types. And a lot of times, a lot of people look at a big building that's dedicated to a data center specifically, but oftentimes it just might be a room within say an office building, those kinds of things. That's kind of how a lot of data center facilities used to be say 20 years ago. But nowadays people are adding in not just large data center like warehouse type buildings, but they're doing it in more of a modular or containerized fashion. And in the way that that's being done, that means that if you think about it, a shipping container, that's containerized. That's sort of where that term came from, where you have everything shipped, say for the data center piece itself so that the racks can be installed. And then you have all of the power and cooling. All those modules can be either in containers also, or can be brought on separately or supported separately for those containers. Then there's the modular and modular is more about instead of doing straight up stick built, you are doing that to a degree, but you can have it act in a modular fashion where you can put the pieces together as you grow. So if you put in a number of modules together, say that those containers might be not quite big enough. You could do a modular, say in the same parking lot, but instead cover, you know, say 5,000 square feet or, you know, um, 500 square meters or so, or whatever that might be in a modular fashion so that you have a number of modules you put together. And then again, you support it with that cooling and that power so that you can have that space keeps it out of the elements. And then you can provide it so that you can keep the environmentals um, to be sufficient as well as get enough power from whatever source into that modular type building instead of going through and building a complete new building. So that's being done in some areas of the, the world. And a lot of times those are not permanent solutions, but because they are sort of temporary, sometimes they are temporary for a long time. So they, it is semi-permanent to a degree. There are co-location facilities, and that's another option that a lot of people have been going with, but that is more along the lines of having a dedicated data center. And those co-location companies and facilities they're just bringing in all of your equipment or even, you know, like helping you out with a lot of equipment and such. And then you basically pay a rent so that that data center becomes more of a rental facility for you. And you can go ahead and have your IT people go there if needed or do some updates as needed, or you can keep everything remote and have a lot of that support on site from those co-location companies and support providers. And then there's the, the basic enterprise and that's based basically whenever you have that company and it's still owning and operating its own data center. So if you think about large corporations or financial institutions, they want to go ahead and own and operate everything. They want to have it under their own umbrella so that they can control everything. 
that's a lot better for them. And if you think about some of those institutions, they want to keep that data center well within their organization so they can keep tabs on it as an operating facility because their entire business might be based around it. If you think of, say, like those um, electronic trading companies, those kinds of things, if their data center isn't up and operational to allow that trade to go through, their reliability goes down, way down, so much so that they may as well just close their doors and stop operating because if, if you can't count on them to do a trade in a timely fashion um, on the stock market, for instance, then they, you know, they probably don't won't exist too terribly much longer. So they really want to control their company data center as much as possible. They may get support from others as well, but overall, a lot of those enterprise companies are out there trying to maintain and keep everything within their bounds. Now, the vast majority of the data centers are enterprise data centers. So if you think of all of the companies throughout the world, they all have data centers to a degree if they have a web presence or you know doing any online um, computing or anything like that. And there's many, many more that are operating with that enterprise as well as a co-location. And that co-location can, again, help out with cutting costs or cutting uh, some of those overhead for those enterprise companies. And that's where a lot of those enterprise companies have been moving is that co-location um, model where they can offset and say, you know what, data centers aren't our primary business. As a matter of fact, none of the IT is our primary business. Um, and we just want to go ahead and keep doing what we're doing. We're going to manufacture widgets and everything that we're doing should be that core business to us. However, we just need a data center so we can do all the tracking, supplying, do all the HR, everything else that the company might rely on. And that can go ahead and locate that in a co-location facility and take up a certain, certain amount of space. So another one is uh, like gaming companies, those kinds of things are very popular, you know, very mainstream, but that's also going to be like a, a co-location or might be just operated by say one of the hyperscalers that might say we can support all of what your data center needs are going to be and they can locate it at one of their data centers for the use whether it's for just that that company use internally or whether it's something that's external as well now one of the things i want to kind of clear up is data center size a lot of people will say oh it's you know this many square meters you have to be twenty thousand square meters and you're a mega data center or you know maybe around 10,000 meters, um, you know, 100,000 square feet, you're a massive data center or large or small. Um, you know, there's classifications that people have gone with and you can follow different ones um, as far as those classifications. But oftentimes, whenever you're talking about data center size, it's not necessarily the square footage or the square meters that you have. It's also how many megawatts you might be supporting. And what used to be 20 years ago is how many kW. Um, you know, you'd say, oh, we've got these 500 kW over here and suddenly start to transition very quickly around 19, late 1990s to be megawatts. And that's where we started to grow in that density as well as the sizes of the data centers very rapidly. And now what we're seeing is campuses looking at, you know, trying to plan out for a 100 megawatt build, which could be a massive data center of, say, 100 to 200,000 uh, square feet per building, and they might have, say, three, four, five, six buildings, or just one massive data center that, say, might be three, four, you know, 10 stories tall, depending on the location, what makes sense. So, a lot of that, though, has to go back to the rack planning and the consolidation for others. So, if you have a co location, how much are you consolidating there? Is it worthwhile being in that location? 
How are you solving for the short-term needs of your customers, your clients for growth, as well as those long-term needs that you're looking for for your business also? Um, some are also going after that small and medium. So if you think about, say, a 5,000 square foot, about 500 square meter uh, data center, that's small, which can be located in a lot of different places, though. If you think about like a downtown or a city hub where real estate is really expensive, as well as getting additional power, you might be limited by that amount of size. And you might only be able to get, say, a megawatt worth of power. So let, let's go ahead and try to wedge that into certain, you know, old parking lot or something like that. Build a small data center there, or even a medium data center where, say, a, um, you know, an old strip mall used to be, and work with the within the boundaries that you have. And that's where we're seeing some of that growth. Some of that has to do with what the, the real estate prices are and the availability, but also what the fiber speeds are. What's that latency? And whenever companies are looking at that data center size and what they're going to be doing, they might have a greater grand plan that says, we're going to only follow our standard footprints. We're going to go with what we know. It makes it easier, faster to deploy and cheaper in the long run. And they've got their formula down and that's great. But sometimes they want to move into a certain spot that might give them a lot less latency. In other words, speed of the fiber that they're going to be looking for. So in that way, they might be building a you know small, medium, semi-large kind of data center um, where they could fit in, say, a thousand racks. And they can look at housing those racks within a certain area or a certain distance in order to take advantage of those fiber speeds. I'd also mentioned a little bit about rack density as well, sort of driving that. And there's current uh, data on some of the densities um, per rack. And oftentimes that's what we're starting to come down to is measuring in that way in order to plan out things. And that way you can sort of see how much energy use you're going to have and gauge accordingly to what efficiencies you might be able to get. And the other thing is there's a lot of regional variability. And because of that, you know, varying across countries, et cetera, it really depends upon the customer. Now, a lot of people will do some studies and do that as independently as they can, and they'll come up with a current density of about seven and a half kW per rack. Others will still be saying, well, it's about five and a half or you know, even four, depending on what their company is using or what their clients or customers are using. And that can go back to some of those co-location providers where they're just moving in the IT from one of their enterprise customers. So they might be just moving that in and taking that existing rack density and just moving that into their data center. Then they might have, you know, maybe the majority of them of those racks are about four or five KW, but then you might have several racks or even a row that say 20 or 30 KW per rack. And that's where the density sort of starts to blend to be higher and higher. And it all has to do with what that rack, um, density is going to work for for the IT individuals and their teams. Certain densities or certain racks are set up so that they're configured to be a higher density. And that's what the IT um, personnel are going to be designing around. So they might have a certain team like a tiger team or whatever you may want to call it, but they're ready to move for, to a higher rack density in order to go ahead and save money. Because a lot of those co-location companies are going to work on how much that cost is basically the rent per month per rack space, as well as that KW that's going to be used. So pay less on rack space, but go ahead and, you know, try to get that density up as much as possible in order to take fully advantage of that uh, rack density 
cost that you're looking at with that colocation provider. Okay, one of the other things that we need to talk about is going to be the cooling. Um, I've kind of touched on it a little bit and making sure that our cooling can match whatever heat output there's going to be. Um, but there's a lot of different cooling solutions out there and we're noticing that there's a lot of transition basically to go for that aisle containment these days. 20 years ago, we were just pushing for that hot aisle, cold aisle kind of arrangement where you're trying to get the, the racks aligned where you don't have the, the exhaust, the hot exhaust of a, a, a bunch of servers feeding into the supply uh, side of the next server rack uh, a row over and getting a lot of clients to understand that and then change how their, their configurations are on the data center floor. That's what used to encompass a decent amount of business. Like just do that simple trick and you're increasing the efficiency uh, significantly. Well, now there's a lot of aisle containment. And what that means is you basically have the cold aisle where the inputs to the racks are facing one another and the outputs are facing one another. That way you have a hot aisle where the outputs are facing one another and the cold aisle where the inputs are facing one another. You feed air, the cold air, the cooler air into the cold aisle and therefore everything is going to stay nice and happy. You don't get a lot of re-entrainment re of hot air into the, um, into the intake side of the racks and the servers, and that's all well and good, but it's even better whenever you start to do containment and you put some doors around either the cold aisle or the hot aisle, and you're preventing that air mixing. Because once you start looking at the amount of cooling that you're doing and the amount of air that you're pushing around the data center, that has gone up just as the densities have gone up. So if you think of it as just being a one-to-one -one ratio on, okay, we're going to increase the density, guess what? We're going to need to increase that cooling and those solutions start to switch over to be much, much more um, detailed and coming closer and closer, getting that cooling closer and closer to those servers where you can. And around 20 to 30 kW, depending on how you're operating your data center, and what kind of containment around that split, around 30 kW even, or even before say 20 to, to 25, you might notice that those might be called like a higher density rack. And you want, might want to start including some of those other solutions where you have in row cooling. And that means you're basically adding cooling instead of using fans or basically blowing air down a cold aisle you're bringing that cooling straight into the cold aisle somehow and basically pulling from the hot aisle, cooling it right in the middle of that rack row and then feeding that into that cold aisle. And to do that, you need to have the piping or you need to have a heat rejection mechanism that can pull that heat out, whatever that is, whatever that source is, whether it's an in-row supplemental cooling, um, some sort of you know row-based water-cooled cabinet, wherever that might be, you need to suddenly provide much closer cooling to everything that's going on as that KW per rack goes up. Now the containers themselves can come in a number of different arrangements where you don't need that, but those higher level racks those uh, that you're looking at will need to have something special. And they might even have just rack-based cooling, rear door heat exchangers, all sorts of different configurations that are out there on the market. And those can look to be very specialty cooling for those racks, and that can start to hit you know, especially around that 40 to 50 kW per rack, definitely looking at some sort of water-cooled solution, whether it's water-cooled at the server or at the chip or water-cooled at the rack itself. But a lot of that comes down to what's your rack density. 
And whenever you are talking about having that water cooling down to the, the server or the chip itself or the rack, you really need to be engaged in talking with all those IT professionals just to say, hey, we know that you want to go up on that density, but here's some solutions that we can look to provide in order to match what you're looking for. Because without it, you might end up with a little bit of overheating and that can limit the servers. The servers themselves are going to limit themselves based on the temperature. So if they start to get up to like 90 degrees C for a chip operating, they're going to go ahead and ramp right back down as far as the amount of processing and everything in order to make sure that they don't burn up. And there's different servers at different temperatures. I mentioned 90 is a limit, but oftentimes you can go much lower than that before you reach a limit. And those limits can be a little bit artificial in order to prevent certain things. It's not necessarily preventing the chip itself from burning it up, but it's to prevent anything around it from burning up. If you look at the server's assembly and all of those different things, it's kind of uh, pretty packed in there. It can get very tight. And if you have 90 degrees C, you're looking at maybe melting a few things in there if there's any sort of plastic, anything like that that's in there. So it can be very delicate once you get up to 90 degrees C. But of course, we're not necessarily operating around those temperatures. We want to stay much, 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 much below that. Some of the other basics, I guess, I feel like I should mention on this first episode is some of the, the uses for different types of data centers whenever they're starting up. And some of those terms, just to understand, we just need to get through here so that we have a common understanding moving forward, such as greenfield. And basically that means it's a new building, it's a new site, everything is built to suit. You can go straight from scratch. Meanwhile, a brownfield might be an existing site that's repurposed. Think of an existing building, say, you know, a parking garage, and we're going to take over part of that in order to fit out the data center. That could work because the parking garage can take those weights that a typical server might have or a typical rack might have, and it's repurposing that for the data center itself. Now, you might also hear about built to suit. Those are data centers that could be brownfield or greenfield, but they're basically built by a developer and they're built to suit a certain customer. So if somebody is running an enterprise data center, they don't want to run it anymore. They want somebody else to take over it. A developer might take that on and say, well, we're going to build you a specific data center so that you can house your equipment. We'll build you 10,000 square feet or whatever that may be, whatever size, and you work through that with them. And they might work on a greenfield, say a a new site um, dedicated to the um, the data center, or they might work with a brownfield and say, okay, well, we're going to take this old building down and we're going to put it this new building instead. So that is definitely something that can be done. There's a few other terms we should probably walk through, redundancy, reliability, and availability. A lot of people will use them interchangeably and we should not, okay? Redundancy strictly means the duplication of the equipment. Or the systems okay so you have two of them so n plus one is another redundancy term that means you have n and n might be just any unit so if you have 10 units plus one means you have 11 units total so if you have three ups and you have an n plus one configuration two of those are the n and the plus one is the third one now reliability is just the likelihood of meeting some certain functions over time that's the standard definition for reliability used for the data center industry, it's the same thing. What's that reliability? 
can we count on those systems being up? And then availability is the amount of time that system is functioning. So that's the difference there is reliability is given more of a likelihood and the availability is the amount of time the system is actually functioning. So think of availability as time. Okay, that's the difference there that we need to, to look at. And a lot of data center companies will say, we're, our availability is 99.999, whatever that might be, and we're available this many hours a year. We've only had downtime for, say, three minutes over the last three or five years or whatever that time frame might be. And that's totally related to availability because it's uh, basically looking at the amount of time but it does speak to the reliability of that data center. Now that downtime is another term that we need to know that basically it's just the time that the systems are not up, the data center isn't up, the systems aren't functioning, and that is measurable. So data centers will measure that, but they might not share that, right? So you're not gonna go online and figure out what's the downtime of a certain company, a certain provider. It's not necessarily shown all the time. So a lot of companies will aim for a certain downtime a year, and oftentimes they'll exceed that just based on their operations and maintenance schemes. The opposite to that, of course, is uptime. And that's the time that the equipment is available to perform whatever functions that you want. And that uptime relates to not just the facility itself. That's got its own uptime, but it also applies to the racks themselves. So if you're looking for uptime of a certain particular function that the racks are handling, the racks have to be up, the servers have to be up, and all the facility has to be up to support that. Now that uptime might be perfectly fine, but the facility might say have a little power bump, say during an electrical storm, or there's some other event that causes a power outage. That power outage in the region might happen, but it might not affect the data center because it might have the backup generators. And that rack, that server will never know the difference and therefore it still has the uptime. So even though the facility itself might take a you know a little bit of a blip or that kind of thing, it reacts quickly enough that that uptime is still intact and it doesn't count towards downtime. So those are some of the aspects we'll review, I'm sure, in the future as well. A couple other things, power usage effectiveness, that's PUE. That's a basic measure we're gonna use all the time. How efficient is the data center? And that's one of the things that that metric is very used, maybe overused, and there's some pitfalls that go along with that. So we'll examine that in further detail, I'm sure. Um, the Green Grid was the, the group that came up with that, um, but a lot have been uh, using it and incorporated it um, from ASHRAE to Uptime Institute uh, to, to others, all sorts of acronyms of organizations that are involved in data centers that we'll also take a look at. But as quickly as they adopted it, they started also realizing the pitfalls that it can happen with it, with using it and trying to compare one data center to another. So it's starting to also fade as far as being something that's a comparative tool. Instead, use it to compare yourself, like your own data center, to itself. How did you do on your PUE last year versus this year? Those kinds of things. But it probably shouldn't be used anymore to compare one data center to another. Another essential thing to understand is the availability of nines. So if people talk about two or three, four or five nines, what they're talking about is just how many nines there are in the percentages for that availability per year. So for instance, 99% is two nines, 99.9% .9 is three nines, 
99.99 is four nines and so on. So it can get up there up to six nines. I've only seen that happen once. It was being strived after to get 99.9999%. But the amount of equipment and redundancy that goes into that is pretty extreme. You are talking about a 2N plus 1 system oftentimes. That means you have two systems running all the time, basically trying to make sure that the load is never dropped, that the power and cooling is always supporting the IT at all times. Now, what does this mean for the amount of time a year? Because we're talking about availability percentages here. Adding a nine can add a lot of time that's up or basically decrease the amount of downtime. But if you go strictly by the numbers, how many hours there are a year, um, you know, you have 8,760 hours a year. But if you do the calculations of 99%, that means 1% is 87 hours and 39 minutes. All right. So that can be pretty high right for the amount of downtime for a year strictly by calculation mind you 99.9 percent means that you're dropping it from 87 hours to about eight hours and 45 minutes so if you add another nine for 99.99 percent availability you're dropping it to less than an hour about 52 minutes of downtime per year and if you do the math and you know you can sort of figure out that's less than eight seconds of downtime per day or four minutes of downtime per month but oftentimes we're not looking at that whenever you do drop or you do have downtime that is not strictly what we're calculating so to get to six nines allegedly you'd be below a minute of downtime per year around 31 seconds 32 seconds a year however whenever you do drop though it it tends to be a little longer for a number of reasons the equipment itself needs time to spin back up so it's not just the mechanical and electrical equipment that needs to be there if the equipment is dropped sometimes the IT equipment will take hours to rebuild and restart and that can be crucial for the amount of downtime that you have or the amount of availability that you have so if you know that you're going to spend all that time trying to get the equipment the IT equipment back up and operating the mechanical and electrical systems might react instantly. They might be up within a minute or two if something catastrophic happens. But that IT equipment might take much, much longer. So what we're really talking about is whenever you're building out those nines, you're building out everything except the IT equipment. You can't really necessarily take that into account for what a lot of designs do, but you must take it into account whenever you're looking at the total downtime for the data center. So in the industry, how do we measure who's keeping track of all of these things for the availability and so on and so forth? Well, there's a group called the Uptime Institute founded in 1983 that came up with a tier classification system. That's really easy. It was really nicely done so that people could understand what tier level was being met and what kind of reliability they might look for in that data center. And they established those different tier levels based on four different tiers where tier one was the basic tier, just a single path, just feeding power and cooling. There's no redundancy at all. Tier two is some redundant capacity with still a single path. And then concurrent maintainability means that there's multiple paths, only active one at a time, but there's enough redundancy in the systems, whether it's the power or the cooling, that it's concurrently maintainable by definition. And that means that you can take a piece of equipment out of service, maintain it, and not interrupt the IT load. 
whereas the tier one, tier two, if certain pieces of equipment need to be maintained, you might be shutting down that data center or portions of it in order to say swap out components or just do some regular maintenance. The tier three sets you up so that you don't have to do that maintenance with the data center being brought down. Then the most reliable is tier four, and that is a fault tolerant data center. That means you have multiple active paths with redundancy on each and each is concurrently maintainable. So how that equates to the amount of uptime though is, and the nines is that fault tolerant is about 99.995% available. So that's the uptime that you're basically looking at. And that annual downtime still might be, you know, around, um, you know, half an hour or so. So you've got redundant power, cooling, etc., for all that fault tolerance, but it, you're still only getting about four and a half nines out of it, right? So you have to look at how much that's going to be and what that's going to mean. But overall, fault tolerant, if you're doing it correctly and you're maintaining the equipment, you really aren't going down that much at all. I mentioned half an hour, but you really aren't going down. Now, concurrently maintainable, that's about 99.982% uptime. Um, and you got you know the redundant power and cooling, but uh, that annual downtime might be equated to about 1.6 hours for that that uh, that percentage that we're looking at. And then tier two is about 99.749 percent, and then that tier one we're looking at 99.6 or so percent. So you can see that even though that tier one isn't that great. Um, it's kind of the same as that tier two as far as like meeting two nines and that's it. So data centers are oftentimes recognized to that and most these days are built to a tier three standard and a lot of will say that they're tier three plus or tier 3.5, something like that. That is not recognized by Uptime Institute at all. You're either meeting tier three or you're meeting tier four. There is no tier three plus, tier three bonus or 0.5 or anything like that. So you can have multiple paths and have all sorts of redundancy, you know, N plus, you know, N redundancy or whatever you want to call it. But the thing is, if you meet that tier three, you're just meeting the tier three. If you don't have multiple active paths with redundancy on each and doing that concurrently maintainable for each, then it's really not meeting that tier four criteria. Therefore, it won't get that tier four la label. It'll only meet that tier three. And labels, by the way, are something that can be achieved through the Uptime Institute, you will get a nice little sticker that says that it is certified, whether the design is certified or the facility itself is certified. And there's a difference there. You have to realize that a tier three designed data center doesn't mean it's going to be built that way. It has to be also checked to see if that facility is operating as a tier three facility, because sometimes the designer has all those great intentions, everything might work out. But once it starts in operation, the operations team might say, well, we don't really need that tier three right now, and it might not get certified as tier three. And the opposite is also true, where the design might not have originally intended to be meeting that tier three, but the team goes ahead and updates through the years to bring it up to a tier three facility, and you can go ahead and apply with the Uptime Institute in order to get your facility certified as a tier three or tier four or one or two um, system. Now, the Uptime Institute isn't the only ones that have come up with different standards and such. There's a lot that are out there. There's a group called BICSI, there's TIA, which is Telecommunications Industry Association. 
They have standards as well for the telecom industry, and they have a standard 942 that was developed specifically for data centers. It was developed in 2005 and updated in 2013, but it's not just applying to the data center itself. It's applying to also like the network architecture, some of the storage and archiving and backups and databases and web hosting and all sorts of different things. And that can also be applied to everything on the data center side though. So if you are looking at how that redundancy and reliability needs to be, that TIA 942 is a pretty good one to take a look at so that at least you understand how it is serving the telecommunications industry and how it was developed for the data centers as well. And the, re the requirements within the data center are considered more developed than some of the others because they do go into some detail. Now, there's a few others that are out there. Um, the iMasons group and a few others have developed all sorts of different standards that you can look to comply to. And other data center facilities might say, oh, here's our standard that we apply to. But in all, a lot of them look at that tier three or tier four kind of alignment with redundancy and such and how it applies to their data centers and their data center design and operations. So you're going to see a lot translates from one to the other and how it's done. So once you learn or you give a good read through one of those standards and then you go to another, you can see how it applies and some of those subtle differences as well. All right, we covered everything that we wanted to on the agenda for this first data center podcast. Again, this is just the intro for those that are uninitiated. But after this episode, I hope you catch on to some of those terms, the lingo and everything else so that in the next episodes, you aren't lost on those and we can dive into understanding some of those other things that make the data center green, as well as some of the top companies, top facilities, and other breaking items that are in the news as well.